You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. 2022, um, this marks, you know, almost 15, 16 years that I've been in the South longer than I've, you know, been alive, and uh, moved to Greenville in 2005, uh, back when there was one Starbucks in the whole place. I mean, is that not a time statement right there? There's one Starbucks in Greenville. It was a great time, and um, I love all the, all the new people. I don't want it to get too, too big too fast. That's my thing. Uh, the coolest spot to be was, like, Coffee Underground. They used to have, like, Cademan's Call would just show up there and just throw a show, and you just take all your Christian dates down there, or in that case, just me and Kyra, and just bask in the greatness of Greenville. How many of y'all love Greenville? Great home, great people. And so um, I'm from up north. Some of you guys are from up north. And I'm from South Bend, Mishawaka. I'm from the, the north. And I was part of a Flirt to Convert. I did not grow up in a Christian background. I didn't do the first communion. I was in Catholic school. I refused to take communion. And so uh, Kyra, Kyra changed my mind, got me to uh, repent of my ways and um, went to a big mega church. And I never missed a Sunday. Loved it. Oh, my goodness. Loved church so much. Loved it. I love the music there, the art, the creativity. I love the wisdom. I love that there was dads there that like, were mentors. I love that there was leadership there. I love that there was community there. I, just, I loved it. I never missed a Sunday. And, and then I moved here, and I realized that church up there is different from church down here. You guys notice this? And so uh, I was kind of like elf. Like I was meeting Christians, and I was like, you're a Christian too? No way. That's crazy. Like, I can't believe that you're a Christian. Me too. And I would, like, tell him my whole life story. And I was like, okay, everybody's, everybody's a Christian. And I was just learning what that word means. And uh, it wasn't so long that I was here um, that I realized um, that although that Greenville has a deep heritage of Christianity, there's also deep woundedness in Christianity in the location that we lived. Right or wrong? And that... Um, and that, you know, the beginning in the Greenville Museum down there of like, of our, even downtown Main Street, it's like the McBee, whatever street, there's like a crosshair where Vardry, like one of the founding fathers of our, of our city, like put four different denominations at the corner of that thing in the name of unity and the gospel. I mean, that's a pretty great way to start. But even despite that, just because of societal things and ultimately spiritual principalities and all that kind of stuff, it's like, it's not new tricks. Like, there is... There is a dynamic of both legalism and lawlessness that exists in our, our little group. Or at least I'd say legalism and anti-legalism. So there's a, there's a level of, I'm just going to drink a drink to prove to myself that I can. Every time I get with you, I'm going to say a cuss word to show that I'm real. And, and there's this pendulum of like, we can't seem to, to sit in the middle, and there's a, there's a legalism, but the, over here, there's like a fear of legalism, which creates a lawlessness. And the funny thing about it is, when you read Paul, he's not offended or afraid of giving directive commands. Like, he's not afraid of telling the church what they should be doing. But the focus is, when Paul's talking about commands, is he's, he's not focused on the law, he's focused on faith. And the interesting thing about both legalism and lawlessness is they're both responding to the law. 
They're fighting over what fits on the do and don't list. And they're not thinking about faith. Because what if faith is telling you to tithe more? What if faith is telling you to go to church more than just Sunday? Or what if faith is telling you to read less or work less? Faith could tell you to do more or do less or do, do different or do same, but faith is, is not something that fits on a list. It responds to a promise. And so... Um, And so when Paul, when Paul talks about this, I'll just give you a couple of examples. Like, for example, when he talks at the end of this book in Romans or uh, in Corinthians, when he talks about eating, the concern isn't what to eat or what not to eat. It's the spirit by which you eat it. He says, actually, there's different people with different measures of faith in this room, and you should eat according to your faith, not your neighbors. And maybe that would mean you'd be more strict with yourself or maybe less. He talks about lawsuits with other believers. And the spirit of that thing is not to sue or not or to sue or not to sue. What the spirit of it is, why not rather be wronged? Like, here's my letter. I'm gonna spend three chapters on the gospel. And once I get to the end of this chapter, I'm not stopped talking about the gospel. I'm just bringing it to your life. And I'm, I'm showing you how to respond to a promise. Another example I thought of is just even gifts, like in the way that we sing or greet people or have hospitality, leave small groups or do whatever we're doing. It's like, let it be done in accordance with our faith, not the commands or not the laws. And so in Romans chapter 4, if you're just joining us, he has just given really the magnum opus of his life, let alone the book of Romans. Romans 3, justification by faith. What? Like not by the law? Yeah, by faith. By the trust of God at his word, trusting the promise. That's what this thing is about. That's what salvation is. It's justification. It's, it's, it's not by the law because the law can't do it. It has to be by faith. And so... Like a good preacher would do, he digs in his bag and he pulls up an illustration. I love when a preacher's talking too long and you're not sure what he's talking about. And then he pulls out a story, all of a sudden it comes up. So he pulls out an illustration. And the illustration is not his wife or his kids. He talks about Abraham. And you're like, that's a funny illustration to bring up. He's like, no, I'm no I know what I'm doing. This is exactly what I want to do, okay? Because the gospel is not God's plan B. From the foundations of the earth, Christ was slayed. And this is what he was doing the whole time. And so he pulls out Abraham, both for the Jew and for the Gentile, both for the legalist and the pro-freedom person, and says, let's look at Abraham's life. And underneath, you're going to see, he's going to peel back the origin story of Abraham's life before the circumcision, before the command, before the covenant, there was just a call. And Abraham at his core, underneath all of the covenants, was just a man with a promise. He was just a man that God spoke to under the stars. And Abraham believed, and that's what righteousness is. And so he asked three important questions that he's leading to a point. And the first question, they're all pretty much the same, but the first question has to do with Abraham's godliness. Hey, listen, when Abraham was called, was he godly or ungodly? It's a big question, right? The order of operations matters. Like, were you my friend before I was famous or after I was famous? Makes a big difference. Right? And so he said, hey, listen, when Abraham is called, was he doing the right thing or the wrong thing? Was he living in Ur as a pagan idol worshiper with nobody, doing nothing right? Right? Or was he perfect and polished? No, he was ungodly. 
Hey, listen, when Abraham was called in Genesis 17, did that become before or after Genesis 15? Was he circumcised when he was called or uncircumcised? Was he a law follower or not? If he was, this thing's about insiders, but it's not. He was uncircumcised, and therefore the gospel is not just for some, but for all. Last question. Hey, when Abraham and his wife, Sarah, got called, were they the Brady Bunch just busting out kids left and right? Were they fruitful or unfruitful? That's a big difference. Because if God's calling fruitful people to just get his cred on the street, that's quite different from picking a postmenopausal 90-year-old Abraham who was barren in the first place before they were even menopausal to go have babies. That makes a big difference in the order of operations. And so all of that to say this, that God started then what he is still doing now, and that is this, that the gospel is not a plan, it's a promise. Look with me in Genesis chapter 12, the very beginning of this whole thing when it all got started. Before the circumcision, before the commands, before the covenant, Abraham was just a man with a promise. The Lord, in verse 1, says to Abraham, hey, go from your country. Go from your people, everything you know, all the stuff, all your households. Leave it, leave it, leave it. Your father's household and go to the land that I will show you. I don't have a plan. I, don't, I have a plan, but I'm not letting you know what this plan is. I want you to just leave, and we'll, we'll figure it out. And then verse 2, the origin of the gospel is this. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you, and I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. Look at the front stanza, the front two words of all of the different parts of that promise. What are the first two words that you're seeing on there? I will. You know what you don't see on that list? Thou shalt. There is no thou shalt on that. You know why? Because it's not up to me. It's up to him. I don't bring the promise. He is. If the gospel's a school bus, I'm on it, but I'm not driving it. I'm not picking the speed. I'm not deciding the turn signals. I'm not shouting out directions. That's his bus. The gospel is a promise, it's not a plan. And that's a big deal because if it's a plan, I gotta know how to do it. I gotta have all the answers. I gotta have the list. I gotta have the security. I gotta have this thing that God's gonna tell me exactly what I should be doing. Oh, and by the way, what my neighbor ought to be doing too. I have to have the plan. But there's no plan. At the end of the day, the gospel is and always will be a promise that Jesus will make all things right through through himself. And so Jesus is making our nation right. Jesus is making your family right. And Jesus is making you right through a promise and not a plan. And so now our life, our life accesses this promise not through works but through faith. Now notice, when you look at that kind of thing and the life of Abraham, the biography afterwards and everything that Paul is writing about, it's not saying that after you get saved, there's no more work to do. A lot of people take that to mean like measuring faith and works by the sweat on my brow. I'm thinking Paul's sweating when he's getting bit by a snake. Works is not defined by the effort. Works is defined by the earning. And works could be doing not a lot of work or a lot of work, no matter what. Works is just what I do because I think I can save myself. And any work that you're doing, whether it's taking a Sabbath or not taking a Sabbath, all comes down to this. Do you think you can save yourself or not? 
And so then faith becomes not finding out the plan, but how will I live my life if I believe that the tomb is empty? If God's promise is secure and I'm not driving this bus, then my life looks a lot different. And so I want to move through these three questions in, in, in uh, Romans chapter 4. And I want us to consider that if the gospel is a promise and not a plan, then my life is for faith and not for works. And that changes how I'm going to do Monday and every other day afterwards. If I'm living by faith and not by works, that will necessarily change some things. And so my, my big three points today is that if the gospel is a promise, then my faith is not earned. It's a gift, not a wage. My faith is done together and not alone. And my faith is, um, is not without evidence. Okay, so we're going to start in Romans chapter 4, if you have it, and we're going to start right to the top. What then, says Paul, shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. What does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Um, my wife's uh, father, Dave Cortella, could fix anything. And uh, he could just look at it and, and fix it. He would get out that Ikea Schlufenschlorgen bed and would throw the, throw the instructions away and just build it out of his soul. Like he could just, he would have just built the ark and God wouldn't have to, he just would have built it. He could build anything. And that's super intimidating as a husband. You're just like, you just, I guess you just think that this just grows on trees, that people just know how to fix things. Sorry to be a rude interrupter here. I do not know how to do that. Like, you know, like look at YouTube, you know. It was so encouraging to me one time talking to her mom, Colleen, and said that when Dave was 20, all he had was one hammer and he didn't know how to fix anything. And that it was a process, a day-by-day, step-by-step thing that he just kept on moving and learned how to do one thing at a time. And what Abraham is, is, or what, what Paul is rather telling us about Abraham is that before Abraham was Abraham, he was just Abram. It'd be the equivalent of, of him reminding us a very important fact. If not for the grace of God, Billy Graham is no better than Hitler. Like we have to, we have to, we have to live from that. Like Billy Graham is made of no other substance than any of us but for the grace of God. That Mother Teresa would be no better off than Saddam Hussein, but for the grace of God. The before-after story is critical because where God finds somebody is where the call exists. And what he's saying is, Abraham, before he had the covenant, was just a called man with a promise. And therefore, the gospel can't be earned. This is what he says in verse four. Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work but trusts, God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited. It's not a credential. It's given. Even David, another patriarch, David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against him. And so it's, it's really intriguing to me, you know, like two humans can be in the same place at the same time doing the same thing, but for two different reasons and have two different experiences. You could have somebody uh, singing on stage, you know, at a church, at a Christian church, 
And one of them is singing because it's a please. I hope that I'm noticed. I hope that I'm significant. I hope that I'm recognized. And one of them could be singing from a thank you. One of us could be parenting from a please, don't let me make the mistakes of my father and my father's father before me. And another father could be doing their fatherly work because of a thank you, because of a gratitude, and they'd get two different results and two different experiences. And what the scripture's saying to us today, if the gospel's not earned, it's a gift, it's not a paycheck. And there's nothing in your life, henceforth moving forward, that has any please or your welcome in it. It's all a thank you. If it's all been established and it's all been given to you, there's no pleas to this. There's only a thank you. Your life is a living sacrifice that lives from salvation and not for it. You're on the bus. You're not driving it. And so the best use of your time, matter of fact, the most fruitful use of your time is to figure out how to live your life as a thank you and not as a please. Because he's already done. What he's, this is not about what you are doing or what you ought to do next. It is about what he's already done in you. And living out the most of your moments henceforth from that place. Then the next part that he talks about has to do with the circumcision. Verse 9, is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We've been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after but before because 15 comes before 17, right? Simple math. So then, he's the father of all who believed but have not been circumcised in order that the righteousness may be credited to them. Abraham was an outsider before he's an insider. Everyone in here feels outside in some degree. You're too old, you think you're too rich, you think you're too poor, you think you talk too much, you think you talk too little. All of us, in some reason, all struggle with our outsiderness. But here's the good news. Ain't nobody, nobody's really inside. We all think we're not invited to a party, and there is no party. The only one that has the party is Jesus. Jesus is the only insider, and he came here to invite outsiders in. And Abraham didn't get called in as an insider. He was an outsider. And so there's nobody entitled to be an insider. All insiders are here to go send out, to go get outsiders. We'd be in heaven otherwise. And so he was, he was called as an uncircumcised, ungodly person. It was credited to him, not earned. Verse 12, and he is then also the father of the circumcised. Not only are the circumcised but those who follow the footsteps of Abraham's faith, not the law, that our father Abraham was before, had before he was circumcised. And so if the gospel um, is opposed uh, to earning, what that also necessarily means in light of the second set of verses that the gospel is also opposed to exclusivity. It's a great book uh, by Scott McKnight called Reading Romans Backwards. A lot of times we want to get into the deep theological treatises of the thing between Romans chapter 1 and Romans chapter 11 and figure out systematic theology. How do people get saved? How do, the, how do the good or the bad people get to the good place? That's what typically we want to look at, especially as westernized individualistic Christians. But if you pay attention to the bigger picture of the law book, or excuse me, the letter, not the textbook, we see that this is not a professor that's just writing to a classroom. It is a pastor writing to a group of people. And the division within the Jew and Gentile group within the church was so strong that Paul, like in every other season, decided that the best thing to do for a divided church is to preach the gospel. Because a divided church is just a boasting church, and a boasting church is just a self-righteous church, and a self-righteous church just needs to get preached the gospel. Because the gospel comes to save our unrighteousness, but also our self-righteousness. 
And so he preaches the gospel. He lays it on thick. But the point of it is it just for our heads to get big. It's for our hearts to repent. And so if you read it backwards, you're going to notice in chapter 16, once we get to it, there's a whole bunch of greets. Greet this person. Greet Priscilla. Greet, 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 greet. You know what's funny about that verb? It's like a directive verb, which isn't saying, hey, send my greeting. It's saying, hey, you, go, you guy over there, you Greek guy, I want you to go greet that Jew. You Jewish person that thinks you're too good to go eat at the lunch table, you go greet that person because that's what the gospel is. And so what we need to understand about this book is that righteousness, justification by faith alone, is not just vertical, it's horizontal as well. It's not just about how we can get to heaven, it's how we can get to family. And the reason that is, is because if I truly believe that I'm made right by Jesus, not by my works, but by his grace, then I got to believe that about you too. And if you're showing up to my small group and you don't act the way that I want you to, it comes down to faith or works. Do I believe Jesus is justifying you or you are justifying yourself? That's the logic. There is no such thing as I'm justified with Christ by myself and not have faith for the justification of my brother. Circumcised or uncircumcised, this is not about outsiders versus insiders. This is about insiders going out. And so, ultimately speaking, a lot of times I think about uh, the gospel, when you think about the frontier of the gospel, of the gospel reaching, you know, families and neighbors and nations, typically we think about things that happen on the street corners. Like, am I going to pray for somebody at the counter? Am I going to give a track? Am I going to preach with a bullhorn? That kind of thing. Like, am I going to have an evangelistic rally down at the Bible? Like, am I going to go out there into the streets and go do something out here, right? But it seems like the gospel, the imperative here for Paul to this Jewish Gentile church is not what's out there, but how the gospel acts in here. Not for the street, but for the table. And so the challenge would be this. It's a lot of hard work to be an outsider. I can't decide which is worse, to be an excluded outsider or an exhausted insider, because I've been both of them in a church before. And both of them need faith. But the thing is, once you're an insider, you fought so hard, and you finally have that table that's vulnerable, that's transparent, that calls one another, that's real, and I don't want anybody inside that insiderness. I don't want anything disrupting that. And so the quickness of the outsider to become the insider and then the insider to work to keep the outsiders out is a hard thing. I know what it's like to be an exhausted insider. I know what it's like to see your tables turned. And if there's anything about the kingdom of God, there's so many hellos and goodbyes, and it's so painful. And the last thing that I would say is just go throw away and squander your community life to go out on mission. And if you go out on mission and don't have a family, I don't know what the point is. But this is what I'm saying. There is a point when a community becomes a clique. There's a point when the vulnerability becomes ruined because it's defending our ideal of community rather than Christ. And it stops the exact mission. Listen, all of us were outsiders until we were invited in. And so the proposition is that there's a time season where things will turn inwards and then it will turn outwards and then it will be gathered and then it will be scattered and gathered and scattered and all that has to do with faith. I was... Um, uh, uh, listening to a podcast the other day about like the future of um, you know the American church or whatever, and they were talking about how I think in the next five years that um, more than fifty percent of people in the evangelical church in the next five years will be people of color, people that are not Caucasian, 
And that'll be because of demographic changes, that'll be because of marriage change and all sorts of things. But more and more, we're going to have a multicultural thing that goes on in our church. And reading this scripture about the circumcision, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. Matter of fact, if you actually look at Genesis 17, when Abraham was circumcised, it says that not only he's supposed to be circumcised, but his entire household. That the promise was always supposed to be a multicolored, multinational, multilingual movement that take place that transcends socioeconomic and racial categories and barriers. So I'm not sure it's not the worst thing in the world that God is shaking up churches in America today to open its doors and widen its reach and change some of the things that it started with in order to continue on with what God is doing in the nation today because there is such a thing as being so safe you're dangerous. There is such a thing when you, when you create a bubble that your kids grow up in it and they question the integrity of the bubble. And if there's no out, then the end gets ruined too. And so I, I just remember this podcast that was talking about, I think she was like an Asian girl or something like that, and she had come to one of these gap year programs where she's learning how to do ministry, and she was going to be a missionary and all that sort of thing. And they asked her, are you having a great time? And she was like, oh, my goodness, they're so nice, and I'm learning so much, and I'm growing my faith. And, and then there's like another question where they're just trying to get to the heart of it, like, but really, are you, are you thriving? Are you doing well? And, and it was really funny. The girl said, I really love the culture here. I really love the teaching. I really feel like I'm growing but I just sense that there's an insiderness that I just can't get into in here somehow. And she talked about the water bottles and the way that the girls did their hair and the way that there was just like another inside track. And if Abraham wasn't circumcised when he got called, then that stuff has to go. Like if this thing is for nations, this cannot be for preferences. And it can't be for comfort. It has to be about Christ. So I'm not saying it's great to be an exhausted insider. I'm not saying it's great to be an excluded outsider. But I'm saying that both outsiders and insiders need faith. And to continue to pursue faith, to do what you can do and what you, not what you can't do, so that God might join the nations together. Because he's driving the bus. And he's a good driver. All right, lastly, and this is the passage that, um, that Price read earlier. Verse 18, against all hope, Abraham in hope believed, and so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead. Since he was about 100 years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promises of God. He was strengthened in his faith, and he gave glory to God, and being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. At the end of the day, when you peel back the origin story, the onion of Abraham's life, at the core of Abraham, before the law, before bringing up Isaac, before having his kids and multiplying into the earth, he was just a man with a promise. He was an ungodly, uncircumcised, unfruitful guy that simply decided to trust that Jesus was going to make things right, not him. And just through that faith, God did everything. Just through that faith, we became one of the stars he was looking at in the sky. And God had you in mind when that promise happened, and he doesn't change his plans. And even if we don't understand the plans, he's still going after his promise because God doesn't change his mind. And so Jesus is making all things right. He's making your family right. He's making our politics right. He's making our churches right. And we're not driving the bus. 
And that's a great thing. And so I want to point your attention to the nature of the faith. You notice in that verse, it doesn't say that Abraham had this blind, immature, fleeting, risky faith. It says he has an unwavering faith. That something so deeply got inside this thing that he decided to put the weight of his life on the weight of God. That word glory, it means kavod. It's like, it's a weightiness. And somehow, God got into the dashboard of his head and his heart through the years of where he was called from Genesis 12 all the way to the the time that he died in the middle of Genesis to change where he put his weight, to look at the circumstances and the calculations, his past and his future, and again, not by just blind, random, risky in Ann Jones' faith, but by faith in the trustworthiness of the character of God that he put all of his life, buried his entire wife in Mamre and put all of his savings into buying that plot of land, the first plot the Israelites own in Canaan, and put his trust in the trustworthiness of God. Friends, in Hebrews 11 or this other place, there's no such thing as blind faith. God is not calling you to just go off and run off a mountain just because you have a whim. What he is calling you to do is to put more and more in your life on the trustworthiness of Jesus because he's trustworthy. And it's not your trust that gets this thing going. It's his trustworthiness. There isn't some material change that makes Abraham any better at the end of his life rather than the beginning of it. He's not any less tempted, not any less tried, not any less hungry, not any less human. He simply has a history with God that tells him, I know the character of my past and therefore the trajectory of my future. I know where to put my trust. And so if I'm going to look at this stool and put my foot on it, faith is not just picking up this theological concept and telling everybody to follow it. Faith is me, little by little, step by step, from Ur to Canaan, putting more and more life of my life on this stool. And trust cannot be simply an intellectual, doctrinal, um, hypothetical thing. It has to be about life. It has to be about what I actually put my decisions on. Yeah? And so what happens is if I, if I get up on this thing, it doesn't make me an acrobat. Like, I'm not doing miracles here. I'm just making sense. I'm making sense. This makes sense to me. Is the tomb empty or not? Is there billions of people, just like he promised, on this earth that are professing Christ or not? Did I see people get healed in my life or not? Did I see change in my marriage or not? Like, he's not asking for blind faith. It's not me that needs to get celebrated. It's the trustworthiness of God under me that needs to get celebrated. This is what Abraham's life is. And so the problem with deeds versus works, you know, works versus faith, rather, is that Works is trying to do what Abraham did to get what Abraham got, but faith is just trusting the one that Abraham trusted in. And so if, if, if the gospel's a plan, I've got to put it on paper. I've got to memorize it. I've got to get a system of leadership to get you through it and make sure that you do all the things that I do so you can get what I got. But when you strip all that away, It's not going to make a difference. It's all dead, just like Sarah's womb, except for the promise of God. But if the gospel is a promise, then I can put my life on it. And I can rest. And I can trust. And there's nothing that's any better about me or worse about me than Billy Graham or any other person in your life, your heroes or my heroes. The only difference between me and anybody else is that I trusted what's trustworthy then I made a decision in my heart to not be wavering. He was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded 
that God had power to do, but he had promised to do. So my dear friend Charles Gouch had this uh, story about a guy named Merle. You know a story's going to be good when his name's Merle, you know? He probably like killed a couple bears and ran a marathon or whatever. He passed away a couple weeks ago in his 80s and uh, started off life fast. He was a goer. He was a doer. He's not a sitting thinker. And uh, Merle went to Notre Dame and he went to UCLA and he started a bunch of businesses and made more money than any of us, you know, by 40. And then he encountered Jesus. And from 40 on, he made a dedication that as he grew older, he was not going to grow more cynical. He was going to grow in faith. And so for the rest of his life, he devoted his life to mentoring young men. Even Charles said on his deathbed, he was still asking about guys that he had just met a couple weeks ago to see if he could get time with them. Because his heart was about mentoring young men. And not because he's special, but because he remembered being called when he was ungodly. Called when he was uncircumcised, not following the law. He, he remembered, as some of us sometimes forget, that he was unfruitful. And now is an opportunity for the rest of his life, from 40 to 80, to be more fruitful than he was from zero to 40. Because God's not keeping on our timetable, and he's driving the bus. And so I want to encourage us, because we're all, you know, a part of this Greenville story. Like, we are in this particular place and time. And if you picked up our church and we moved to Montana, we would have to be different because we'd be in a different location and be a different time and a different place and a different spiritual climate. But the climate that we live in, if I'm not wrong, comes from a deep heritage but also a deep woundedness. And the answer for both, the people that are outside and inside, the godly and the ungodly, the answer for us all always is faith. It's to believe the promise. The one the one that said that he would make things right has made things right in Jesus. And therefore, the one that trusts in Jesus can't earn that, doesn't have the rights to be exclusive in that, and is simply asked to trust in the trustworthiness of God and the history of God and his reputation. Do you have faith today? If you have faith, you're very rich. If you don't, I don't care what you have, you're broke. You and me need faith. And so I just want to ask you, where, where is your faith? Where is your faith today? Do you find your life living more as a please, a desperate plea to be noticed and recognized, to have safety and significance, to have security? Is it a please or is it a thank you? You know, the best way to test your self-righteousness is to test your access to diversity. The easiest way to be blind is to be isolated. If you want to know if you think you save yourself, then go be with people that are different from you. That will tell you what you think is righteous. Lastly, do you trust? Do you trust? Not trust the thing you can't trust in yet, but the thing you can. This is what I always tell people when they go through, you know, midlife crisis or theological crisis or whatever, church burnout, is like, yeah, I know, I know you might not believe in organized church. You might not believe in small group. You might roll your eyes at men's groups. like, but what do you know? Because you're still accountable to what you do. you believe in the resurrection of Jesus? Well, let's do something about it. You're not asked to tithe $100,000 to a church if you make 10 grand a year, right? And if I, if I took a sledgehammer and hit you in the knee, physically speaking, I'd respect that you have an injury. And if you have spiritual woundedness, you're not asked to live 
out of spiritual health with something that's spiritually wounded. But you are asked to do something. You're asked to take a step. So what is faith? Faith is trusting in what he's done and not what, he's, what, what I think I need to be doing. Trust, faith is trusting he's driving the bus. Faith is doing what I can, not what I can't. So I just want to encourage you. Like, Abraham's no better, but what made Abraham Abraham was steps. Read what you can, pray what you can, give what you can, serve what you can, and don't let, allow what you can't to be an excuse for what you can do. Because the righteous and the unrighteous, the godly and ungodly, the fruitful and the unfruitful, all need faith. And we need faith just as much today as we did yesterday. And that is the only thing that's going to get this bus anywhere, is the promise of God, not your plans. Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc.